Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to the Nebraska Hawks Nest. These guys are brave. They're Hawkeyes living in enemy territory. Listen, these guys are way past their prime, but they're still Hawkeyes. They're spreading the Hawkeye hype to all of Nebraska. The Frost Advisory is cancelled! Corn Huskers? More like Corn Shuffers. Are you ready for this podcast? Let's go Hawks! All right, welcome back to the Nebraska Hawks Nest. You're all visually seeing a new treat we get to have with us. Jerry is going to be joining us today, and we are going to be interviewing former Iowa basketball play-by-play broadcaster. We have Mr. Bob Hogue, sir. Thank you for taking time to join us today. Boy, I'm just I'm super excited, all hyped up here. And that intro really got me hyped up. Oh, my, that youngster is outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it that you dropped the oh my already. Like, let's go into that a little bit. Was that just like an organic thing that started during during your broadcasting career, or was that something that you kind of thought about that you're like, hey, I, you know, I, I need to come up with a catchphrase to to re- to really market myself. I can't really take credit for it. For it, uh, I copied somebody that I looked up to when I was a youngster. Um, I started watching college basketball with my dad while growing up in Southern California. And back then, they didn't have uh, the advantage of watching, you know, 10,000 games across your screen. Literally, UCLA basketball was the best college basketball team in the nation, winning national championship after national championship. And their games were on delay at 11 o'clock at night on Fridays and Saturday nights. My dad and I would make sure that we didn't listen to the news, the radio, nothing, so we could watch the delay broadcast. And a guy by the name of Dick Enberg, who's in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame, was a young broadcaster at that particular time, and his catchphrase was, oh, my. And so 
just like a lot of young people who aspire to be a broadcaster, I started practicing as if I was doing games and I would just throw in the oh my. Lo and behold, a few years later, I got one of many first dream jobs for me. I was a guy in my young 20s um, coming up in the business. I landed in Iowa. I was promoted from a TV station in Sioux City to Waterloo Cedar Rapids, KWWL. We had a very visionary general manager at the time, Bill Bolster, who went on to work in St. Louis and New York and, and, and NBC. He was the one who came up with the idea of the Iowa Television Network. And lo and behold, here I was, literally a youngster, 25 years old, broadcasting Iowa basketball. I did it just like I practiced it. And oh my, came into the broadcast. And before you knew it, that thing was statewide. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. And I couldn't believe how much it caught on. Bob, going back to when you started and this Iowa Television Network, you know, we almost have to backtrack because this was back before ESPN. It was before Big Ten Network, before cable TV. I mean, this was really groundbreaking material to actually have a statewide contract that um, broadcasts those basketball games. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more how that came into play? Or? Absolutely. In fact, uh, ESPN started about the same time that the Iowa Television Network started. I re even remember when ESPN was a fledgling broadcast, Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, starting in Bristol, Connecticut. And they even imagined that they were going to do some live sports. This is like 1979. And I got uh, called in to do a, a few broadcasts for them. I did Iowa wrestling. I did Iowa gymnastics. They were doing everything just to fill the air, if you can imagine, in their infancy. Well, we were in our infancy with the Iowa Television Network. I think the first year that we did games, the athletic director at the time of the University of Iowa, Bump Elliott, he was afraid to do live ball games. He thought it's going to hurt the gate. No one realized how popular it was going to be. As soon as we started doing broadcasts, the interest, which was already sky high in Iowa, just absolutely went through the roof. So this is like the 1979-80 season when Iowa started out, I believe it was like 9-0. and And uh, after Ronnie Lester got, got hurt, they ultimately were able to finish fourth in the Big Ten, barely eked into the NCAA field, but then with a surprise Cinderella team that went all the way to the NCAA Final Four. It was absolutely a magical run by that Iowa Hawkeye basketball team. The next year... I believe we were dubbed the Iowa Television Network with stations across the state of Iowa, not only the flagship station, KWWL, which was located in Waterloo, but also stations in the Quad Cities, in Des Moines, in Sioux City, and even uh, Mason City, Iowa, which uh, got into Minnesota. All of a sudden, we, we talk about the Nebraska Hawks. We had, we had the Minnesota Hawks as well. So it was amazing the reach that we had. We had a lot of folks also watching us in Illinois and down in Missouri. I mean, it was just incredible. If you can imagine, as you watch ball games now and you hear about, uh, wow, boy, they got a lot of people watching that. They, you know, they maybe picked up a five or a six share or something like that in the amount of uh, uh, television sets that are watching. Iowa basketball became so popular 
that we were getting 60 and 70 shares, the greatest college basketball viewership in the nation. It was absolutely incredible. We did uh, pregame shows, which became incredibly popular. We literally just kind of threw those together where we interviewed some of the players on the team. It was an amazing experience and a journey there. And I was lucky to do it for five years before I ended up moving on to California. You know, the cool thing about you that maybe a lot of people growing up in Iowa and watching you call Iowa basketball games don't really know is, you know, you played baseball at USC. You were a USC Trojan. And, uh, we, you know, Jerry and I really want to know when the Holiday Bowl this year and then back when we played USC in the Orange Bowl, you know, nobody's watching. It's just us. Tell us, were you rooting for the Hawkeyes or the Trojans? I was sitting in the SC section, and I want to tell you, honest this is absolutely honest i was rooting for iowa it's the only time in my entire life i was rooting against my alma mater my heart was absolutely bleeding black and gold there were iowa hawkeye fans all around and as you know the iowa hawkeyes put on a tremendous show uh just running away from that sc team and it was uh it, it was interesting late in the third quarter um, when Iowa was starting to run away with it, my buddies wanted to leave. And I was thinking, I don't want to leave. I'm having a good time, even though I'm wearing my SC paraphernalia here to try to you know, back up my buddies at that time. I, I could really feel it because, you know, the energy of Iowa fans is like no other place. And, uh, and I, I tell you a real, real quick story. As you know, uh, when you look back at Iowa history, you know that they went through just a really lean streak in the 60s and 70s with Iowa football. It just year after year after year, losing football teams. Hayden Fry came in, and you know the legend of Hayden Fry. He immediately turned the program around. It was just absolutely amazing to watch this grow. And in his third season there, he led the Iowa Hawkeyes surprisingly, to the Rose Bowl. And the, and, the, and the state got so excited about this that they sent 40,000 fans out to Pasadena. 40,000. I mean, it's amazing when you think, you know, these days where maybe there'll be 10 or 15 or maybe 20,000 fans going, but that, that team sent 40,000. How incredibly passionate was that Iowa fan base? When they were getting beaten badly in that game, and the first time that they played there in in the Rose Bowl, they got beat by Washington 28 to nothing, and frankly were never really in the ball game. In the fourth quarter, the Iowa fans not only didn't leave, they stood up and started singing. I mean, I get just chills thinking about that. It almost makes me want to tear up just how passionate and positive those Iowa fans were. And that started a run of year after year of going to to bowl games. And I was fortunate, uh, you know, during that time to not only catch the Iowa team when I was a sportscaster in Iowa, but when I went out to California, I caught them in a number of games as well in California bowl games. So uh, I've been an Iowa fan ever since I stepped foot into a broadcast booth in Iowa back in the late 70s. And still to this day, 2021, I'm still a Hawkeye fan. 
Hey, Bob, go ahead and tell us about when you started in 79. We had a coach by the name of Lute Olson at Iowa. Can you go ahead and expand on your uh, memories and uh, any stories that you had with Lute? Well, Lute Olson, uh, similar to me, you know, I grew up in Southern California. Lute Olson, he didn't grow up in Southern California. He was actually a North Dakota boy and then uh, played some some football and basketball and, and a bunch of different sports in Minnesota. But he came out as a young coach to Southern California. I knew of him because uh, he had been a great coach at Long Beach College and also at Long Beach State for a very short time period. He came to Iowa when, uh, you know, things were, you know, needed to be turned around. And he was just one of these very meticulous kind of guys. And he put together a squad led by a, a lot of guys that got recruited from some of the big cities in in the Midwest, uh, from Chicago, from Detroit. You know, he'd get a couple of, you know, great players from Iowa. And he immediately started to turn things around. In 78-79, um, the Iowa team uh, were co-champions with Michigan State. You may know that Michigan State team. Magic Johnson was on it. Mm-hmm. And so that started the run of really outstanding Lute Olson Iowa teams. And that, uh, that first one in 79-80 was, uh, was magical with a pair of, you know, twin towers. Steve Krasnison and Steve Waite were on that team. Uh, Kevin Boyle was an all-Big Ten player. Uh, Bobby Hansen was a great shooter from the outside. Mark Gannon was a freshman from, from Iowa City. Vince Brookins, a great shooter from the outside. Kenny Arnold was the, uh, was the number two guard. And then the point guard, he was the heart and soul of his team. Ronnie Lester, who, as you know, went on to a great career in the NBA as well. Ronnie Lester led them to their, their fast start. And I think they would have ended up winning the Big Ten that year. But Lester went down with a knee injury. And he was literally out for a couple of months. It wasn't even certain whether he was going to come back. And Iowa kind of like fought for that, you know, third place, fourth place kind of a finish there. Ronnie Lester came back on the final weekend. Iowa won those two games to give them a winning record in the Big Ten Conference. And they were literally one of the last teams to come into the NCAA tournament, which at that time only had 48 teams. So um, Iowa was sent out to North Carolina. And I remember it was a, a late decision by my, uh, you know, visionary general manager. He had a little, uh, had a guy that would fly a private plane. He came to me literally the day of the game and said, do you want to go to North Carolina to cover the game? Not to do play-by-play, but just to, you know, get there, get some highlights, uh, do some interviews. Well, of course I wanted to go. And we flew from Iowa to North Carolina, and we watched them play Virginia Commonwealth in the first round of the NCAA tournament. And uh, I never even knew where Virginia Commonwealth was. As a matter of fact, I believe it's uh, Fairfax, Virginia. But in any case, um, they were in there. Iowa played well. But nobody really expected them to go really far because their next game would be against North Carolina State, who was in the top ten in the nation at that time. They had a player – with a name that Iowa fans from that era will remember for years because his name was Hawkeye Whitney. <laughs> and he was a tremendously great player. And here they were playing in North Carolina against NC State. No one really gave him a shot. 
Iowa, coached by Lute Olson, and he was brilliant, a mastermind at preparing his teams. They just blasted NC State, and they got into the Sweet 16, where once again, everybody thought, this is it. They're not going to go any further. They've got to play Syracuse next, who I think was ranked number three in the nation. And then Georgetown was also in the opposite side of the bracket. These were two of the best teams in the entire nation. Once again, Lute Olson got his team ready. They clobbered Syracuse in the first round of the Sweet, Sweet 16. And now they were facing Georgetown and probably one of the most memorable games in Iowa basketball history. And I remember at the time, again, I'm not broadcasting, and I'm there just to cover it. We're getting highlights. Uh, we're going to do interviews um, after the game. Back then, things were a little bit looser than they are now. And I set up my position literally under the basket. I was sitting on the floor next to my cameraman watching the game as Georgetown built a 14-point lead. 14-point lead with 14 minutes to go. And it flashed through my mind what Lute Olson had said time and time again, and I'd used this line in some of my broadcasts. He said, you never try to make it up all at once. A point a minute. And I watched it. Vince Brookens, so hot from outside. Ronnie Lester, just running the floor, absolutely perfect. And sure enough, I looked up at 12 minutes, down by 12. At 10 minutes, down by 10. At 8 minutes, down by down by 8, down by 6. They not only made it up in less than 14 minutes, with about, I think, about 5 minutes to go, they had caught up to Georgetown. Well, this is in a time period where they didn't have the clock. Ronnie Lester was one of the best dribblers in all of basketball. He literally dribbled out the clock down to the uh, less than a minute to go, just brilliantly running the court in the front court. Absolutely incredible. Game is, is tied with under 30 seconds to go. Ronnie Lester, they, they'd, they'd set up a play. They were going to go to you know Vince Brookins or one of the outside shooters, and somehow Georgetown overcompensated and the ball in the final seconds ended up in the most unlikely guy's hand, a guy who doesn't score very much at all, just a big guy who works really hard underneath. His name is Steve Waite. Steve Waite turned and went to the basket really hard and scored the biggest basket in Iowa basketball history, going hard to the rim, scores the basket, gets the foul, hits the free throw, up by three, Georgetown comes down, hits a two at the buzzer. Iowa wins by one point and goes to the final four. How big was this in Iowa? The Iowa fans poured into the Iowa Fieldhouse. Nowadays, guys, people go to the Fieldhouse and they'll watch the game on a giant TV or something like this. This was absolutely unheard of. But the team was going to fly in that night, and the Iowa fans – from all over Iowa, wanted to touch and cheer on their team. 10,000 fans streamed into the Iowa Fieldhouse, and it was absolutely a madhouse. The players were not aware of it at all. Lutels had been, had been told, I believe, when, when the plane landed that this was going to happen. 
And so the players thought they were going back to drop something off at the field house. Imagine their surprise when they walk in the field house and there were 10,000 fans there. It was an absolutely incredible experience. And they went on to the final four. Ronnie Lester, unfortunately, got hurt again in the semifinal game uh, when they were playing Louisville. And I think they would have beaten Louisville had he not, uh, you know, been hurt. They ended up losing by, I think, eight points. And uh, it was the last year when they actually even had a, a, a consolation game. But in any case, um, it was an incredible experience there to be a part of that. And it was all because Lute Olson was just such a tremendous coach and year after year would lead Iowa into the NCAA tournament. Uh, Bob, with the current state of the Iowa basketball program and with all of your knowledge and everything that you've seen over the years, what do you feel like this current staff with Coach McCaffrey really needs to do to get this team past the second round into the Sweet 16 and, and farther? Boy, I tell you what, that's 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 one of the toughest things. You know, you know, even, even Lute Olson, when he went down to Arizona, at first there was just this you know, they, they seemed to get knocked out in one of the early rounds, even though they were ranked in the in the top ten of the nation. Eventually, they were able to overcome that. You know, I watched this uh, this you know Iowa team this year. Boy, I tell you what, uh, Luca Garza just <laughs> what a, what a beast he is, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You know, interesting story about. It. I just wanted to. Did you know that his grandfather played basketball at the University of Hawaii? Of course, I, I don't I, think I, 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 I did. I did. I would. I ended up doing Hawaii basketball in the in the nineteen nineties. I wasn't aware of it until I started reading a little bit about him. And in fact, uh, he was a he was a big guy on the the University of Hawaii teams. Uh, I believe back in the in the early seventies. So it's it's interesting how uh, <laughs> things come around, and it's just it's fun to watch this uh, this Iowa program. I know you were all disappointed with the early exit. It just wasn't the Big Ten's year. Um, there are years when it is the Big Ten's year. Uh, this wasn't one of them. That was a great team. Um, they had some huge wins this year, and you know, I'm not a, I'm not a coach. I'm 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 the I'm the guy that you know uh, cheers on the coaches, and uh, I, I wish only the best for this Iowa basketball program. Bob, just a quick note on the Garza family. That I don't know if you were aware of, but Frank Garza played for Idaho, and. I'm not sure if he was on the team or he started the year after that Idaho knocked Iowa out of the NCAA tournament in 82-83. I got to brag a little bit because I'm this old, but I actually messaged Frank after and said, wasn't that the shot that bounced high off back iron and went through the hoop at the uh, end of the game? And Frank <laughs> that. So, so the Garza family does have a uh, kind of a longstanding uh, coincidence here in this conversation between uh, – the Hawkeyes, the Vandals, and uh, and Hawaii. So yeah, it, I tell you what, I vividly remember that game as well, because it was because of that game that George Raveling became the next coach of of Iowa. Um, you know, Lute Olson. Um, it was it was a bit of a surprise, although some of us uh, were aware that he was being um, uh, courted by the University of Arizona. And you need to know that University of Arizona had literally the worst program in division one at the time so it was quite a surprise when Lute Olson decided that it was time that he was going to go down there it was it was a family decision he went down there and as you know um, turned them around in a couple of years so um, Iowa was was literally faced with you know they've got to come up with somebody and uh, 
George Raveling was the head coach at Washington State University. As you know, it's only uh, about 20 minutes away from the University of Idaho. Washington State was hosting that particular regional and um, that Idaho-Iowa game that you mentioned there, the the play-by-play guy um, for you know whoever was doing the game at that particular time, he ended up um, with some sort of a, a throat issue, maybe laryngitis or whatever the case may be. He could hardly speak. You know, I would, I, I I told somebody, I said if they need somebody, you know, I can pop in there. Ultimately, what they decided to do was they moved the color guy over to play-by-play, and George Raveling, who was the basketball coach at Washington State, um, was able to pop in there. They were not part of the tournament. It uh, just happened to be that that's where they were they were having the game. And he so impressed the Iowa people that they ended up, uh, when this opening came up, they remembered George Raveling. He became a finalist and then was named the next head coach. So it came literally from that game by an accidental circumstance that actually impressed the Iowa people. I'd never heard that story, Jerry. Have you heard that before? I had not heard that before either. That's a rare piece of information. I did not know. That's an awesome story. <laughs> Tell us about your relationship uh, with Mac McCoslin. Uh, his son, Kent, you know, got to play at Iowa, which was, I'm sure, really an honor for him to be able to call his son's game. But it, from everything that, you know, we've witnessed and heard that you guys had a pretty special relationship. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, you know, Mac McCausland did the, uh, did the color for Jim Zobel and uh, on the, on the radio, but I knew Mac, uh, you know, because, you know, he was uh, just a big fan of Iowa, j- just as I was. And my color guy was Charm Sherman. And uh, so whether, whether we were doing the games at home, or whether we're doing on the games on the road, it was not uncommon for, uh, you know, all of us to hang out, you know, whether it was Jim Zobel, uh, Mac McCoslin, Charm, myself, Ron Gonder was doing games on the radio at that time, Bob Brooks as well. If you can imagine, uh, literally wherever we went, there would be a bank of broadcasters. So I would be doing the TV side and there would be these guys were doing the radio. So, uh, you know, I know because I was later able to call a, a state championship game with my own daughter playing in it. And I know that Ron Gonder called a state championship uh, game with his um, son in it, I believe. And he also had an outstanding daughter who was a, a, a great player as well. And so for Mac getting an opportunity to do that, it's so special when you get to literally call your own child's game and because you've seen, you've been with them all the way through and to imagine they're playing on this biggest stage like that. But Matt, great guy, great booster. And uh, boy, I have great memories of, of working at least in at broadcast row with him. Lucky land casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha. In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Come one, shop all at the JCPenney Friends and Family Sale. Through Wednesday, use your 30% off coupon inside the JCP app and shine on with up to 60% off diamond solitaires and studs. Plus, get carried away with up to 70% off luggage from Samsonite, American Tourister, Skyway, and more. Anyone shops, everyone saves. We got your holiday. JCPenney. Offers valid on select items through 12-7. Offers reflect after coupon savings. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Bob, go ahead and expand if you would on Charm Sherman. Uh, you know he's the numbers been retired. He's you know he's but he's one of the great Hawkeyes in history. Kind of expand more if you would on uh, his personality and, and working with him and uh, the type of guy he was. Charm Sherman was one of the most charming people that you are ever going to meet. He was a, a former Iowa basketball great. He was a young coach who came in uh, at the last moment and uh, and coached uh, briefly for Iowa. And then he ended up becoming a businessman. Um, he was working along Jim Zobel, and uh, the Iowa Television Network was growing when our uh, executives approached him and said, you know, is there a way that uh, we can get Charm Sherman? And he came in. And we ended up becoming literally the best of friends, um, whether it was um, flying to a game or driving to a game or uh talking about the game ahead of time and recapping everything. If you can imagine two guys that broadcast together who were just tremendously close. Um, we, uh, we cared about each other. Um, we cared about uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes. And uh, it, it, it was just a thrill to do games with him. Just a real quick story. One year, you know, uh, he, was, he was older than I was by about 20 years or so. And I used to love to play basketball. And so I was always trying to encourage him, would he come and play ball with me? Well, we're on the road, and we're going to do a game against Oregon State. And so um, we scouted out a gym, and I said, will you play with this time? And he said he would. So we go down there. We're literally playing two-on-two against the young guys. And so here I am. I, I was probably in my you know, late 20s at the time, playing this against some guys that were younger than that. Charm was a master handler of the ball, just almost like uh, a, a magician with it, if you will, okay, if, if you can imagine. And uh, he was spinning the ball. He was he was making behind-the-back passes between legs. After a while, these other guys that we were playing against, we were literally getting layup or easy shot after easy shot. They were good athletes. They had to stop the game and say, who are you? And uh, so we, we had a good time just telling him, you know, this is Charm Sherman. He was on a, you know, an undefeated Big Ten championship team, you know, back in the day. And um, it was just, it was incredible. They were, they were so absolutely thrilled to meet someone. And I was thrilled to work alongside with him. Um, as you know, he, he passed away, you know, several years ago uh, due to cancer. Um, a Facebook, Facebook friend is his wife who has carried on, um, just the legend of him. And uh, I just remember Charm Sherman so fondly, literally one of the nicest people that you'll ever meet and one of the greatest Hawkeye boosters of all time. All right, Bob, we need to know this. We're going to paint a picture for you. It's the early 1980s. We're all three friends, me, you, and Jerry. We're buddies. But Jerry and I, we're rolling into Iowa City, okay? And we're going we're gonna to hang out. What are the, some of your favorite places that you're going to take us to, whether it be a restaurant, someplace to get a drink, something fun? What, what were your, some of your old favorites there in Iowa City? I am going to tell you this. 
I was such a nerd. I went straight to the field house or straight to Carver Hawkeye Arena. I never hung out anywhere. That's the honest truth. Oh, Um, man. I was literally, it was like, I was excited to be there. Sometimes I was there well before anybody else. I was thrilled to to go. And then I knew that I'd have a two-hour drive, you know, afterwards because I had to drive back to Waterloo when there was no freeway. Um, Mm. So I can honestly say that uh, I never hung out anywhere. If I could just uh, really, really quickly, I know that you guys are doing this live. I am on my phone, and I just saw that I'm low on battery. Is there any way that we could just take a quick break while I get a uh, plug in my phone? Would that be okay? Absolutely. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Jerry and I can sit here and shoot the breeze here for a little bit. You go take care of that, and it will be totally fine. It'll it'll just be just a moment. I'm just going to get that and and plug in. So hold on just one second. I certainly don't want to leave you. Hold on. No. Not a problem. Now, Jerry, I thought that was that was super interesting. And I can't even imagine back in the 80s, too, what it would be like to, you know, go out in Iowa City and the differences and, you know, having it, like you said, drive all the way back to Waterloo right now, like at that time with no interstate system or anything like that. It's you got to have a passion for what you're doing and a lot of dedication to to and stick with that. You do. What I got out of that story was the fact that you wouldn't be rolling with him if he was all business and no fun. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so if you had friends like us, I would like to think that we would be able to be like, all right, Bob, like we're going to go have have a beer after the game, come hang out with us. And so hopefully we would have been that, you know, that bad slash positive influence that would have been able to get Bob out for a beer or two after the game. So. I, and I was very interesting too because I was not aware of the George Raveling influence at that uh, at the game that he was talking about up in Idaho. Yeah, that that's an amazing story. And Jerry and I are about the two of the biggest diehard Hawkeye fans you could ever find. Um, so you know we don't we don't have much of a social life either. So it's mostly <laughs> Hawkeye related. So we had never heard that story before at all. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that that listen to this that hear that that are going to be like, wow, I. I did not. I did not know that. Now you've had a, the chance to. You've lived in some pretty cool places, Bob. You, you, um, you lived in Hawaii for a while, which a lot of people may know or may not know. And you lived in Waterloo, Iowa. Now the two have been compared a lot. They're almost identical. You know, they're. It's like almost the same place. You look at Waterloo, Iowa. Look at Hawaii. Pretty much the same. What 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 are some of the big drastic changes from living in a place like Waterloo and then going to like the tropical climate of Hawaii? Well, I have to tell you, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to go. Excuse me, while I get my uh, camera set up here, try to get somewhere in the middle of the screen it's here. Okay, per- here we go. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, so, um, I went from Waterloo, Iowa, which you, as you know. Um, Probably not a lot of people uh, go there on their vacation, but really tremendously nice people, great people. Um, you know, used to play basketball over in Cedar Falls, the University of Northern Iowa all the time, and uh, worked with great colleagues, including Ron Steele, who's still there at KWWL-TV. I was actually recruited out of that, out of Iowa, by a competitor. There was a... Um, there was a consulting firm that was based in Cedar Rapids 
which was one of the most powerful um, consulting firms of that day, Maggot, Frank Maggot. They were based in Cedar Rapids, but they had clients all over the nation. Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, reasonably popular at that time and a young guy. So they said, uh, you know, where do you want to go? And um, ultimately it was, uh, you know, I'd like to go to California. And uh, then the next thing I know, I was uh, offered a position in Sacramento television. Um, they were hope- hoping to get the Sacramento Kings. It was a top 20 market market. I was a young guy of 30, so I went out there. Um, unfortunately, the station ended up not getting the Sacramento Kings, <laughs> much to my disappointment. And, um, you know, a few years later, they had a big management change, and a whole bunch of people, you know, ended up uh, on the, uh, you know, the red line. So I was one of those, and I had to say, okay, what do I want to do? Do I want to continue chasing um, the uh, major market, you know, situation where literally every time there was a, a management change, you could end up uh, on the cutting room floor, or do I want to go to uh, a smaller market like uh, there were in Iowa? Well, it turned out my, well, it didn't turn out. I knew this all along. <laughs> my mother was from Hawaii and I loved Hawaii. And so um, I, I reached out to uh, a, a station there and that started a conversation. This is uh, in the late 80s. And ultimately, that station in Honolulu hired me as the sports director in 1988. So I've been in Sacramento for four years after previously being five years in Iowa. And that started a, a 12-year run in uh, in beautiful Honolulu. It's, it's an absolutely gorgeous place. But it's like, a, uh, it's like a big, small town. You know everybody. You might run into the mayor or the governor at the movies or at the grocery store or at the beach, um, and like um, Iowa, and I would say there's, amazingly, there's this big comparison between them, and you live in Nebraska, and you know how passionate the people are in Nebraska as well. The folks in, in Hawaii are tremendously passionate about everything Hawaii, you know, including their sports teams, um, and, you know, I was uh, lucky enough, you know, not only to do the, the nightly sports news, as I had done in Iowa and Sacramento, but also to get to do play-by-play. So I did play-by-play of the University of Hawaii on uh, basketball and football for a number of years as well on radio. And it was, a, it was a tremendous experience. For 12 years, I was on the number one station there in, uh, in Honolulu. Once again, a management <laughs> change <laughs> ended up uh, handing me the pink slip. But I was recruited, uh, if you can imagine, uh, this uh, amazing change from – sportscaster to politics, um, I ended up started getting recruited for every single elected office that you can possibly imagine. I got asked uh, first to run for Congress, then to run for mayor, then to run for city council, then to run for state house of representatives, then to run for state senate. I kept telling them, no, 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 I want to stay in the world of sports. And ultimately, uh, after a few months, um, it just seemed like it was the right decision. And so I made the decision that I would indeed run for state Senate. And uh, I was fortunate enough to win a few elections and served as a state senator there in in Hawaii for a number of years. And uh, it was it was it was a great experience. Uh, (laughs) Everybody talks about sports, uh, you know, 
you know, how wonderful it is. Uh, they don't say the same thing about politics. <laughs> in, in the difference, the difference is, if I can use a sports analogy, in, in the world of sports, you go into every game and you have no idea what the outcome might be. In the world of politics, you know immediately what the outcome is going to be before it even happens. You know what the vote's going to be ahead of time, no matter how incredible your argument is. Um, and so it, it's a bit of a frustration, but it was a great learning experience uh, to serve the people of Kailua and Kaneohe uh, and Windward, Oahu, and serve in the Hawaii State Senate for, for a number of years. And then ultimately, you know, all the experiences that I'd had over the years led to me be, being named the PacWest Commissioner, overseeing an NCAA Division II conference that is located now in Hawaii and California. Now, Jerry can really identify with you, too, there, because you know the people in Nebraska have been trying to get him to run for governor for years, and he <laughs> just won't do it. And now I'm trying to tell him, you know, maybe maybe we'll get to change his mind here pretty soon, but we need a Hawkeye in office in Nebraska to help clean things up. So, you know, <laughs> maybe he'll run here eventually. There you uh, go. Go, Jerry. Governor Jerry. Yeah, I know. A Jerry Adam ticket for governor in Nebraska. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You might want to keep me off that ticket. You don't want to lose votes. You want, you want, to, you want to gain them. So t- tell us, Bob, a little bit about um, your role as, that, as the PacWest Commissioner, because that's, um, that's a pretty awesome gig, it sounds like. Uh, tell us what, what all you've done uh, for that and how long you've been doing it. Well, the, um, the PacWest was a conference that had almost dissolved in the early 2000s. Um, it had been a, a huge D2 conference throughout the West, but it was it was literally too big. It, it ranged from Montana to Alaska to Hawaii wow. to New Mexico. Um, and it surrounded uh, another conference of Cal State schools um, located in California and also the Rocky Mountain Conference. So it was probably bound to break up. Ultimately, it got down to where there were only four members. And um, I was recruited to be become the commissioner in 2007. At the time, we had six schools. And they were trying to see if they could build it back up. Um, and so my marching orders, literally with no experience in NCAA administration, but just a tremendous love for sports and a willingness to do whatever it took to do it the right way and build this conference back up. We doubled the size of our conference within the next five years, wow. um, expanding into the states of, of Arizona and Utah and throughout the state of, of California. Uh, three of our schools have gone on um, to Division I, uh, Grand Canyon, uh, Dixie State, and Cal Baptist. Um, that's not usually the way it's, it's done, that you use D2 as a stepping stone, but for those programs, uh, ultimately, it was. Um, you know, we now um, have a very well-established conference, 11 schools located in Hawaii, Southern California, Central California, and Northern California. Um, I'm honored to serve as the commissioner. Um, that's a job in which I, I literally wear a lot of hats despite, or, or besides just the PacWest hat, which I try to wear everywhere that I go and my PacWest gear, which I'm proud to, to, um, show off. I'm, I'm a cheerleader. I'm an administrator. I'm an adjudicator. I'm a check writer. I'm a schedule maker. And, um, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a rules maker. I'm a <laughs> I'm a, I'm, the, I'm I'm the judge and the jury. You know, a, a bunch of times um, I'm somebody that uh, brings everybody together 
um, to talk about the issues. In, in this year of COVID, we probably had more Zoom calls than you can possibly imagine. Yeah. So uh, I literally wear a lot of hats, um, as do many NCAA Division II commissioners. The NCAA Division II, people say, uh, you know, um, you, do you have scholarships? Yeah, we have scholarships. We have great athletes, too. In fact, we do all the things that they do at Division I level. We do just do it with a lot less resources. We have small budgets of like three or four million dollars or something like that instead of tens and tens of millions of dollars at the Division one level. But our but our student athletes um, perform well in the classroom. Um, they play at the highest level that they possibly can um, in competition. And uh, we're just we're just proud of them. That get they get scholarships. Uh, they get all the great opportunities and they get a, a really well balanced education at our NCAA Division II schools. Probably yeah. one of the most recognizable names, too, in your conference, circling back to the basketball era we're talking about, is Chaminade, the original giant killer who uh, beat the Ralph Sampson Virginia teams back in the early 80s. So, Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, Chaminade, uh, uh, when I first became the PacWest Commissioner, there went, Chaminade, everybody would, just, would say them. And over the years, they've beaten a number of teams. I, you know, I've, I've watched them beat uh, Oklahoma and Texas and Cal and and uh, of course you you know the the famous ones back in the day when they were the giant killers with beating Virginia and Louisville and those sorts of teams and and um, so they've been to the NCAA tournament a number of years. We've had some great teams in in Hawaii, uh, you know Hawaii Pacific University of Hawaii Hilo BYU Hawaii before they they ended athletics with was an outstanding team. You know, nowadays, uh, Point Loma is the national championship game for, for basketball just two years ago. Azusa Pacific has a great program. Biola and Concordia as well. Fresno Pacific went into the NCAA tournament for the first time ever this year. Uh, Academy of Art, the only art school in, in the NCAA, um, is in San Francisco and is in our conference along with Dominican and Holy Name. So, I mean, you know, we, we've got a great conference, great people. And we're just proud of the things that they do. And for anybody that hasn't spent time uh, watching Division II sports, I think they'd be pretty surprised the level of competition because it is very, very high. And, you know, coming out of high school, I was um, able to be a, a student manager for a Division II school and uh, got to play with the team fairly often in practice. And the talent level from where I was at, which I thought I was a pretty good basketball player, to the level that they were at was it was a large gap. We'll just say that. Um, there was guys that were about five, six inches taller than me pretty consistently. They were about three times as fast as I was. They could do everything skill-wise that I could. So um, it, it's a it's a high level of competition. So, um, you know, anybody out there that hasn't taken the time to check out some Division II sports, there's a lot of really, really strong talent out there. Absolutely. Who, what the school are we talking about? Uh, Wayne State College out in Nebraska, and so they are oh, in the Wayne northern State, sun. Wayne State, Nebraska. There you yep, go. Yep, yep. They yeah, are in the uh, northern sun. Yep. yep. Yeah. Wayne State. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the yeah. northern sun, as a matter of fact, is a great conference. Um, Aaron Lind is the uh, is the commissioner up there. Uh, one of my favorite commissioners at NCAA Division Two. They, they year in and year out, they've got some some great teams uh, playing. Um, there and uh, you know in the Midwest, NCAA Division Two, you know the MIAA, 
is mm -hmm. there as well. Uh, the Northern Sun, the GLVC, the, the, the GLIAC, you know, on and on. Just some absolutely tremendous NCAA Division II um, throughout the Midwest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a high level of competition. And every once in a while, just like when Chaminade's a giant killer, some of those uh, schools rise up and, you know, beat a D1 school and everybody talks about it for, for years and years. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm just blessed that I've had a, a wonderful career and opportunity to do so many things and reminisce with you about uh, about Iowa sports. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. You know, when you when you when you think back about those days in, in Iowa sports history, the, the start of the Iowa Television Network, the rebirth of Iowa football. Um, the Lute Olson great teams that they had in basketball. One th one uh, sport that we didn't mention that was so high on the list that time was Iowa wrestling. Dan Gable, the Olympian, who literally was just brilliant. He was he lived in Waterloo as I did. He was a legend um, there, and then he was the head coach of the Iowa wrestling team. Literally, one of the first broadcasts I ever did was an Iowa wrestling meet. I had never been to a wrestling meet at the collegiate level. I'd only watched high school wrestling, so I had a lot to learn. And literally, it was one of those last-minute decisions. Hey, we have, the, we have the rights to do the Iowa-Iowa State wrestling meet. Why don't you go down there and do it? Uh, see if we can get somebody on the team uh, or one of the assistant coaches. They can be your color guy, okay? So we went down there, and <laughs> this was so unsophisticated. I believe this was at the Hilton Coliseum. It, there were 10,000 fans there, Iowa and Iowa State. I think they were either number one and two in the nation or number one and three in the nation at that time. We sat, you know, you talk about in basketball where you sit at a table courtside, you know, with a monitor and the whole bit. Well, we didn't have monitors back then. We literally just had microphones and a big, gigantic um, deck you know, where we were, where we were literally feeding tapes in to, to broadcast this because we were going to show it uh, delay. There was no place for us to sit. So we sat on the edge of the mat. We were literally just outside the circle. So we're doing the, we're doing the match. And literally I was learning as I was going, learning all the vernacular and the whole bit. We were getting into it. It was a great match. The fans were going absolutely nuts. Well, you may remember, Jerry, uh, some, these twins for the University of Iowa at that time, the Bannock twins. Oh, my goodness, thanks. They were phenomenal. They went on to become Olympians. They were Big Ten champions. They were All-Americans. They were phenomenal. Well, they were just starting their career. And I can't recall now whether it was Ed Bannock or it was Lou Bannock, but it was a big moment in the meet. It was relatively close as we were getting to some of the upper weights. So there we are calling the match, and whichever it was, one of the Bannock twins was literally on his back, and he was literally trying to, you know, avoid um, being pinned. And in a real quick reversal, he pulls a real quick reversal, gets his opponent on the back, and just within seconds, just about ready to be beaten, he turns him around, great reversal, and pins him right then. So I'm calling the action. It's incredibly exciting. Big, huge uh, points there for Iowa. This is probably going to lead them to victory. The fans there are just going absolutely berserk. 
I turned to my color guy to get, you know, his analysis of what just happened. He's not there. <laughs> He's not there at all. I turned to look back to talk about, you know, one of the Bannock brothers, what was happening. And I see in the middle of the map, right after they held the, the hand up to say that this was a victory, He's in the middle of the mat, jumping up and down with the Bannock brothers and the rest of the Iowa team. (laughs) It's the only time that I can remember literally losing my color guy in the middle of a broadcast to the winning team. That's fantastic. That's such a great story. That's Iowa wrestling in a nutshell for you right there. But, Bob, we don't want to keep you too much longer. We just want to genuinely thank you for taking time out of your schedule. And You have lived one heck of an interesting life, and we appreciate hearing all the great stories you have. I I feel like we have to have you back on again. There's way more that we could talk to you about. There's so much more. Trust me, there's plenty more to ask. It's about some of the great players from from back in the day. Many of these guys are – or Facebook friends of mine, you know, Steve Carfino is down in in um, Australia now, and Michael Payne is on Facebook, and you know uh, they they had the great benefit recently for uh, Kenny Arnold that who had mm-hmm. passed away, and uh, Mike Henry Tree, you know, doing all the the great stuff there, and boy, I just I, I remember all of these guys, just phenomenal guys, and they are a credit to to the state of Iowa, and you know. Doesn't matter um, where you live, whether you live here like I do now in Sedona, Arizona, or you live where you do in Nebraska. Once you have been involved in Iowa sports, you never forget. It's in your heart, and it's in your heart forever. Well said. I well agree. Said. All right, Bob, we're going to have to connect and do this again. I'm sure Jerry will be reaching out to you. And you've had a huge impact on his life growing up and tons of people from the, the state of Iowa. So thank you for everything you've done and all the awesome stories that you've shared with us. And we're going to connect again here soon and have you back on to share some more of those stories. But, you know, we always we always end it with a go Hawks every time we sign off. So go Hawks, Bob. Well, I'd have to tell you, I have to add two words to that. Okay. All right. Go Hawks. Oh my. Uh, I love it. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Have a great rest of the night. Thanks again for coming on. So long now. All right. Come one, shop all at the JCPenney Friends and Family Sale. Through Wednesday, use your 30% off coupon inside the JCP app and shine on with up to 60% off diamond solitaires and studs. Plus, get carried away with up to 70% off luggage from Samsonite, American Tourister, Skyway, and more. Anyone shops, everyone saves. We got your holiday. JCPenney. Offers valid on select items through 12-7. Offers reflect after coupon savings. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details.